Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in Him. Thank you. Please turn to Galatians chapter 2. It's page number 972 if you're using one of the Bibles there in the seat in front of you. Let me also take this opportunity to remind you that uh, we haven't talked about it in a few weeks now. Each week in your bulletin there is a panel. I think it's when you first open it. It's the one that's facing us. Is welcome across the top that has some sermon questions for the week. These are being given to you as a tool. Uh, hopefully they are helpful. Hopefully they're not fluff. I'm writing them, so I hope they're not fluff. Uh, they're designed to either help you review things from this particular Sunday or perhaps to prepare yourself for the week ahead. So if you are not in the habit of doing any Bible study on your own throughout the week, use those. It's a good tool if you are. Maybe incorporate some of those things. I think it will help you to prepare each and every Sunday. We're going to read Galatians 2, 11 through 21, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. If you will, please look at verse 11. Paul writes, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to this time around your word, I ask that you will help us to remember that every single one of us in this room, we stand by grace alone. We, we have not been accepted by you because of our genealogy, our biology, our pedigree, our upbringing, our families, our churches. None of these things make us right with you. In the end, we recognize that no matter what our backgrounds, whatever our, our circumstances or situations may have been, it is by your grace and your grace alone that we are justified. And so I pray that you will help us this morning to see that anew and afresh. 
Help us to continue understanding what Paul is laying out for us here in his letter to the Galatians. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back in June 2014, Steve Hargraves published a story in CNN Money titled uh, Squandering the Family Fortune, Why Rich Families Are Losing Money. And I want to read you just the opening paragraph of this particular story. It says, and I quote, Nearly 60% of the time, a family's money is exhausted by the children of the person who created the wealth, according to Roy Williams, president of wealth consultancy, the Williams Group. In 90% of the cases, it's gone by the time the grandchildren die, And to quote. So just to make sure you understand, he's saying that if you've got a person who generates a, or amasses a little pile of wealth that they leave to their family, six, there's a 6 in 10 chance, 60% chance that by the time the children die, the wealth will all be gone. And there is a 90% chance that by the time the grandchildren die, the wealth will all be gone. And as he is making this point, he turns to a real-life American example, uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt. Cornelius Vanderbilt is born on Staten Island on May 27, 1794. Even though he was very poor by birth, his family was a poor family, and he has almost absolutely no education at all. By the time he's 16, he's already started his first business. He had bought a little skiff and was running a ferry there in uh, New York Harbor, taking people and goods across the harbor. Uh, he uses the profit from that business to buy another ferry, and then he keeps both of those ferries, and he goes to work for another ferry operator there in New York Harbor, and he keeps taking all of his profits and his, his money and sort of uh, rolling it together. He eventually uses that money to build a steamboat empire that reaches nearly around the world. He also gets into railroads and creates a railroad empire that reaches across America. Now, time and purpose prevent me from walking us through all of his many business accomplishments, so I'll cut to the chase. By the time he dies on January 4th, 1877, Cornelius Vanderbilt is worth $100 million. Now, we hear that and we're like, $100 million, that's a lot of money. Uh, yes, but you're forgetting that's in 1877 dollars. If I were to put that into today's dollars, he would have been worth over $200 billion. That's billion there with a capital B, all right? I uh, went and looked it up on uh, Forbes' list of 400 wealthiest Americans alive today. Cornelius Vanderbilt's worth, net worth, was roughly equal to that of uh, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and uh, Warren Buffett combined. Think about that. That's, that's a lot of money. And yet, despite all of that amazing, almost unbelievable wealth, his children and especially his grandchildren lived so lavishly there in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that they pretty much squandered the entire fortune. In fact, Hargraves notes that in the 1970s, the Vanderbilt family held a reunion. 120 Vanderbilts showed up at this reunion, and not a single one was even a millionaire. 100 years between Cornelius' death and that reunion. Now, I draw your attention to this article and to the Vanderbilt family in particular because it serves as an excellent illustration of some of the things we're going to be looking at today. I want you to think about Cornelius Vanderbilt, and I want you to recognize that from a human perspective, from just a pure situational perspective, he would have been born into a disadvantaged situation, would he not? I mean, just by pure fact of birth, nothing he did or chose on his own. He's born to a poor family. He has almost no education to speak of whatsoever. If we think back to last Sunday and all I talked about with Robert Rakes and the origin of the Sunday school movement, 
we would say that statistically speaking, there was a better chance than not that Cornelius would not only live his entire life in poverty, but would then leave his children to grow up in poverty as well. And yet, despite his clear disadvantage in life, he ends up becoming the third wealthiest American to ever live. John Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie are number one and two, if you're interested. Talk about a a rags-to-riches kind of story, right? Now, hold that and think about the uh, Cornelius' children and grandchildren. And again, I want you to recognize that from a purely human perspective, from a situational perspective, they are born into a clearly privileged situation, right? Just, again, by pure fact of birth, nothing that they did to to cause it or anything, they are all born rich. They all receive the best educations that are available. And again, if I look back to Robert Rakes from last Sunday, I would say that statistically speaking, they had a better than average chance to live their entire lives in wealth and then to leave their children to grow up in wealth as well. And yet, despite their clear privilege in life, they end up becoming, um, well, like us, right? <laughs> Maybe worse. I don't know. I don't, none of us are actually poor at all. We are all extremely blessed. But it's definitely a riches to rags story on their end of the spectrum. Now, keep all of that in mind as we review where we started last Sunday. Last week, I began looking at the biblical and theological foundation that Paul is laying out for us here in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. These verses are his explanation to us of what was wrong about Peter's decision to separate himself from his Gentile brothers after that group from James arrived there in Antioch. And while we could have probably just breezed through that explanation really quickly just to get right into the heart of Paul's argument, which starts here in Galatians 3, it seemed to me that if we flew through this section, we would just have to stop later on and rebuild the same foundation we're building now because what he does here in this particular explanation and in this particular story is going to last us throughout the rest of Paul's letter. Paul here in this explanation is assuming a certain amount of understanding on the part of the reader that Quite frankly, I'm not sure that we are safe to assume, and I mean no disrespect with this to any of you or to the first service or anyone else for that matter, but as I kind of made the point last week, I think there is a great amount of biblical illiteracy in the world today, even biblical illiteracy in our churches. And so I have made the decision to not assume anything, or at least try to not assume anything, I'm not going to assume that everyone in here knows the Old Testament, its characters, its story, its themes. I'm not going to assume that everyone in here understands the historical and cultural context, not just of this letter, but of of the scriptures as a whole. I'm not going to assume that you get the theological connections and implications of all the, the various statements and assertions that Paul is making here. Rather, I'm just going to take my time as we look at this foundation to stop and examine every single stone that Paul lays out for us here to make sure we really truly understand it. Now, last week we looked at the first of these foundation stones, and that was the biblical and historical fact that the Jews, those descendants of Abraham through his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob, the people we call Israel, the children of Israel, nation of Israel, etc., they were, by pure fact of birth, in a privileged position when it came to knowing and living in relationship with the one true God. Now, this took us back to the Old Testament story 
of God rejecting all of humanity there in Genesis chapter 11 to, in Genesis chapter 12, choose this one man, Abraham, and his family after him as being the one through whom he would recreate his people. This made Abraham's descendants, the Jews, genuinely special. I'm not, you know, we we need to understand that they are genuinely special. God had chosen them above all the families of the earth. He didn't choose my family. He didn't choose your family. He chose that family to make them his own. Uh, He entered into a covenant with them. He gave them his law, gave them his word. He, He comes and dwells amongst them in Jerusalem. He promises to them a Messiah, a Savior to come and make all things right again. To sum it up, they were, as I said, by pure fact of birth, in a privileged position because they had a real hope of possibly being and knowing, uh, being in a right relationship with and knowing the one true God. The rest of humanity, what the Jews call Gentiles, um, we didn't have it so good. Because our forefathers rejected God, God in turn rejected them, which means that for all of us, by pure fact of birth, We were in a disadvantaged position when it came to knowing and living in relationship with this one true God. Or, if I'm going to use the biblical language that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2, we were hopeless and without God in this world. And so that first foundation stone that I zoomed in on last week, and remember uh, the picture I gave you kind of like of a diamond with a thousand facets, and I'm like, we're going to look at just one very specific facet. That's what I said last week. This was the one we looked at. This very, very specific idea is that there really was such a thing as Jewish privilege and Gentile disadvantage, theologically speaking. And you get to see that here in verse 15. As you read this verse, doesn't Paul come across here sounding like Jews are privileged and Gentiles are not? Uh, Can you see that? You know, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. You kind of get a tone of, of superiority and of, of Jewish privilege here. I hope you pick up on that because in one sense, he is absolutely correct to think that way, feel that way, and talk that way. But in another sense, he's not. And if you'll think back to last Sunday at the beginning of our time together, I told you that as Paul is laying out this explanation of his conversation, his confrontation with Peter, he makes a biblical and historical distinction, a correct biblical and historical distinction from a purposefully half-correct, purposefully half-incorrect cultural and theological perspective. That is really hard to say. Every time I try to like get that out of my mouth, it doesn't want to sound right, but I'll say it one more time just to make sure you heard it correctly. What Paul is doing here is he is making a correct biblical and historical distinction from a purposefully half-correct, purposefully half-incorrect cultural and theological perspective. Last week, I showed you the correct biblical and historical distinction, that between the Jews and Gentiles, of God's rejection of all of humanity, choosing Abraham and his descendants through Isaac and Jacob as being his people. That is the correct biblical and historical distinction. You have to understand that, really, to understand all the rest of Scripture. I also showed you the purposefully half-correct cultural and theological perspective that Paul has here, which is that of real Jewish privilege and real Gentile disadvantage when it came to knowing and living in relationship with the one true God. 
But what I didn't have time to show you last week was the purposefully half-incorrect cultural and theological perspective that Paul is presenting here because, as I told you last time, that is a foundation stone in and of itself. And so, to begin looking at this stone, let me draw your attention to two words here in verse 15. These are the words Gentile sinners. Now, as I have already explained at length, there is a sense in which it would be 100% correct to refer to Gentiles in this way, as, as being sinners. I mean, if you just think about it, by pure fact of birth, they are not a part of the nation, the children of Israel, which means because they're not a part of the nation or the children of Israel, they do not have the law of God given to them, which means then that if they don't have the law, they are lawless. Are you following this logic here? And so if they are lawless... They, by default, because they don't know any better, live their lives in sin. They don't have access to the word of God, to the law of God, to know what God wants or doesn't want them to do. And so Paul is right. They are sinners. But as he says this, I want you to understand that he is doing so, at least partially, tongue-in-cheek. In other words, he's saying this in a particular way that he knows at one level is not true. You see, the Jews had a wrong view of themselves because of their privileged position. They had come to believe that just by pure fact of being Jews, that they were themselves uh, in a inherently superior, theologically speaking. You say, huh, what, what exactly does that mean? Well, let me put it in a little more clearly. Over time, they had come to believe that God would accept them as being right with himself simply because they were Jewish and because they kept the Old Testament law. That salvation was basically contingent on biology and outward obedience. I'm oversimplifying, but I'm trying to summarize, and I think I can make a strong biblical case for this, and I will do so in a moment. This is the essence of their understanding. And one of the best examples of this kind of thinking in the New Testament is from none other than the Apostle Paul himself. Now, I took us to this text a few weeks ago just quickly to show you something, but I want to return to it now this morning, and I want to look at it in a little bit more detail, and hopefully at this point you're going to be able to read it and see it with some new eyes that you didn't have last time. This is Paul's description of how he viewed himself before Christ from Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. He says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, before we look at the next verse, just stop and think about the idea being communicated here. What does Paul mean when he says that he had confidence in the flesh? Well, He's referring to the very idea uh, that we're looking at today, how the Jews had a wrong view of, their, of themselves because of their privileged position, how they thought that God would accept them just simply because they're Jews and because they kept the law. This is what he is referring to here when he talks about having confidence in the flesh. He's saying, look, if anyone else thinks that they've got it right before God with all this stuff that we would typically understand as, as what God wants from mankind, listen, I've got more than they do. Now, here are his credentials, four things that caused him to have such confidence in the flesh. Number one is because he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, this should be easy to see and appreciate now. What's he drawing attention to? His Jewishness. Hey, look, I'm a Jew's Jew. 
I'm of the, the right nation. I've got a tribe. Uh, my biology is right. My genealogy is right. My pedigree is right. I'm not a Gentile. I'm a Jew. His first reason for having confidence in his own flesh is because he's from the right people. Number two, as to the law, he says he was a Pharisee. Now, I won't go into detail today about what it meant to be a Pharisee, um, other than to say that when we hear that term, we instantly think of it negatively. Like, if I call you a Pharisee, you're probably going to be offended. Even people who don't know what a Pharisee really is know it's a bad word, and so if someone calls them that, they're like, hey, like, what is it? I don't know, but I know it's bad, right? So you, you... I'm going to blow your minds for a moment and help you understand being a Pharisee is not bad. Not in Paul's day. It's actually good. They were the conservative religious party of their day. They tried to be as biblically faithful as possible, both in their theology, what they believe, and in their daily living, their practice, how they would live out their faith. And while I know you won't like me saying this, partially because I don't like me saying this, they would be like us. If Pharisees were around today and, and were Christians, they'd come to our church because we are trying to be religiously conservative. We are trying to be as biblical as we can in both our theology and in our practice. And so not only is he a part of the right people, but he's also a part of the right party, the right religious group as well. This is the second reason for confidence. Number three, he says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Now, what exactly does he mean by as to zeal? Well, what he's getting at is, how committed was he to his people and his party? Well, he was so committed to protecting the people of God as he understood it at that time and this religious party that, is, that he's a part of that he was willing to become a soldier at war against anyone who dare attack either one. Um, to put this in a context that maybe you and I would relate to a little more easily, and because this is going online, uh, just read between the lines of this comment, Think of that family that we sent to that country a few months ago. And think about the people that they are ministering to. It is not uncommon to have situations where those people, when they feel that their national or religious heritage is in any way being threatened by an outside group or belief system, to do what? Attack. To, to, to physically harm people who would in any way threaten those things. They're, they're zealous. And this is exactly what Paul is doing here. He, he's not just part, a partially committed follower of Judaism. He is willing and ready, so zealous for his religious and national identity that he is willing and ready to turn to the Jewish form of jihad, if you want to think of it like that, in order to protect his people from this cancer called Christianity. Does that help you understand his zeal when he refers to this here? So this is his third reason for confidence. But the fourth one, the fourth one is what seals the deal. Number four, as to righteousness under the law, he's blameless, blameless. Now, I don't have time to fully address the Jewish view of the Torah, of the Old Testament law today. That is a foundation stone unto itself. And we'll get to that either next week, perhaps, or the week after. I'm not sure. Um, regardless, for now, just note that Paul, at this point in his life, viewed himself as being blameless when it came to obeying the 613 commands found in the law of Moses. Now, you and I hear that and we're like, really, Paul? Like, 
Did you really think you were blameless? Like as you looked at your life from childhood until the point that you were uh, converted, uh, saved by Christ, did you really think that you were blameless in all 613 commands? And the answer is yes. That is, in effect, exactly what he thought. Now, it's a little more complicated than that, but, but for today, I will keep it as simple as he does here. Yes, he saw himself as being blameless when it came to the righteousness, note that word, the righteousness that he thought he could achieve under the Old Testament law. And of course, then we're tempted to go, what was Paul like, some kind of egomaniac to think that he, that he could really keep all of God's commands? No, no, Paul's not being an egomaniac at all. This would have been the very common view in Paul's day. Again, I think I gave the same example the week I took us to Philippians 3, but I'll go back there again, hoping you can now see it with some new eyes. Think of the story of the rich young ruler, okay? The RYR, if you want to think of him that way, all right? So here's this guy, right? He comes to Jesus with a very specific question. What must I do? That's the, the point of emphasis in his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, so you hear in his question, he thinks at this point that somehow being righteous before God is directly tied to his actions, his obedience. This is exactly the, the sentiment that Paul is communicating here. Okay, so, so exactly what does Jesus say back now to the rich young ruler? He answers the very specific question that was asked. He says, okay, you want to inherit eternal life? Here's all you got to do. Keep the commandments. Simple enough, right? You good. You want, to, you want to know what you have to do? Here's what you'd have to do. Perfectly obey the law of God. You got it? If you can do that, we'll be good. Now, you and I might hear that response and be like, snicker, snicker. <laughs> Jesus is being kind of funny here back at his answer. But the rich young ruler doesn't get that. What is his response when he hears Jesus say that? He goes, all of these I've done from my youth. I've kept them all perfectly. What else do I have to do, Jesus? Like he... He honestly thinks that he has perfectly obeyed the law of God. He sees himself exactly the way that Paul saw himself. These guys aren't anomalies. This, this is just how it was. And so when Paul thought about his former life before Christ and the way that he viewed himself um, in his standing before God, it's these four things that give him this confidence in the flesh that he talks about here in Philippians chapter 3. This is the wrong view that the Jews had of themselves because of their privileged position. As I said a moment ago, let me say it one more time. They had come to believe that they would be accepted by God and be right with him simply because they were Jewish and because they had and observed in their own estimation the Torah, the Old Testament law. But of course... There's a problem <laughs> with this. There's a problem with both of their assumptions that are there. There's a problem with both of the presuppositions in that statement. Number one, being born into the correct family, the children of Israel being Jewish, doesn't mean that God will automatically accept you as being right with him. And number two, despite their best intentions and sincerely held beliefs to the contrary, uh, they had not kept the Old Testament law. They just hadn't. 
And Paul directly addresses both of these views in a passage in another one of his letters, the letter to the Romans. Now, you can turn there if you want, but I'll put it behind me here so you can see it. It's up to you. We're going to read a very short section from Romans chapter 2. But let me set the stage for you in Romans, just in case you're not familiar with that letter and how to properly read it. To understand the early part of Romans, particularly chapters 1 through 3, you really need to have like a courtroom setting in mind. You've got to be like in the second the half hour of, of law and order, right, when they're in court. That's where you've got to be. You've got to see Paul as the prosecuting attorney. You have to see the defendants on trial as being all humanity, every man, woman, and child from every race, tribe, nation, etc. The charge against us is sin. And so what he's doing in these first three chapters is he is laying out his case that all of humanity has sinned against God and is therefore rightly under his divine wrath. And as he does this, he begins with the easy, obvious target. He starts with the Gentiles. He's like, hey, listen, you see all the Gentiles? They're all sinners. But of course, this is like shooting fish in a barrel, right? Everybody understood the Gentiles were sinners. <laughs> they, they didn't have God's law. They didn't understand what God wanted them to do. And so they always sinned. That's an easy case. No one would argue there. But he doesn't stop at that point. About halfway through chapter 2, he begins to turn his focus to the Jews. And this is where we're going to pick up his argument, starting here in verse 17. He says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, you should hear music now, right behind you, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Which is another way of saying, do you participate in idolatry? I know it's a little confusing, but that's what he means. You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Now get verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely, and there's your word to underline, merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, let's go back and just notice a couple of things. Notice in verses 17 through 20, Paul mentions the very assumptions that we are talking about this morning, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law, if you're instructed from the law, if you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, he's referencing the fact that the Jews see themselves as inherently superior simply because of their biology, because they're Jewish, and because they think they, they have and keep the Old Testament law. This is what would make them right with God. And so he begins to respond to those assumptions. He begins by making the point that they have not kept the law like they think. 
He gives a series here of rhetorical questions. Do you steal? Do you commit adultery? Do, do you participate in idolatry? And, and you should know the answer to this. What, what is the answer to a rhetorical question? Yes. Do you steal? Uh-huh. You commit adultery? You sure do. Do you participate in idolatry? Every day, right? Like, this is the idea that he's trying to get across to them. And, you know, they would have looked at this and go, no, 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 we don't do that. We don't steal. We're not committing adultery. I'm not participating in idolatry. But, but whether they understood it or not, they do all of these things. And if you're confused as to how that could be, let's go back to the story of the rich young ruler one more time. So, so when we you know, met him, right, he comes to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him the correct answer. If you want to know what you have to do, you've got to obey the commands. Great. All right, we know that. He says, I've done all of these, though, since my youth. Is there anything else? And, and there's no reason for us to think that at that point he's being dishonest. I think he's really explaining how he sees himself. And so how does Jesus respond? He says, okay, then. You want to know? Go and uh, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. Now, just let that sink in for a moment, the, the statement that Jesus is making to this guy here at this point. What does the man do next, if you remember the story? He walks away from Jesus, sad because he had many possessions. Now, we should ask ourselves a question at this point. Why does Jesus tell him to sell everything he has? Is Jesus indicating that, you know, one of the ways you can achieve eternal life is by taking a vow of poverty? Basically, you know, if I just sell everything I've got, and I'm very generous to the poor, then there we go, I've got eternal life, I'm, I'm, I'm set now. Um, no, that's not it. Uh, maybe if I ask a different question, it will help you a little bit more. What is the very first commandment? Now, notice I didn't ask you what is the greatest commandment. I said, what's the very first commandment? The very first commandment is this, uh, you shall, uh, excuse me, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Well then, what that means is when the moment came for this man to make a choice between potentially spending eternity with Yahweh by selling his goods or keeping them so he could enjoy them for a few more years, he chooses his stuff. It's like Yahweh, eternity, stuff, a few more years. I like my stuff better. So what that means then is that this man hasn't even kept the first commandment. Jesus is exposing the fact that this man is an idolater. His money is his God. He hasn't kept the first commandment, much, much less the rest of them. Now, no doubt, if you had asked this guy, hey, look, have you ever broken the first commandment? Have you ever had a God before Yahweh? He'd be like, no, never. Never would I put any God before Yahweh. But by his choice, he makes it clear that he didn't really even understand the command or himself. And this is what Jesus is exposing in that story, and it's the very thing that Paul is exposing here. You think you haven't stolen, but you have. You think you haven't committed adultery, but you have. You think you don't participate in idolatry, but I'm telling you, you have. And he says it to them point blank in the very next verse. You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. He doesn't even take the time to explain how they do it. He just knows it. He, he's like, I don't have to explain it. I know you guys don't get it. 
I know you guys are lawbreakers. You're, you're not the law keepers you think you are. You're frauds. You, you break the law. And then he goes into this interesting little hypothetical situation about a Gentile and uncircumcised man who actually keeps the law perfectly is kind of the idea. He's like, even though that guy's not circumcised, wouldn't his law keeping count for circumcision? Well, he's like, yeah, it would because you see, no one is a real true Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and, and physical. In other words, it's not your biology. It's not your outward acts of law keeping. A Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. It's, it's for a person whose praise is not from man, but from God. You're like, what? He's saying that a true Jew is not about your DNA. Being a true Jew, not about your genealogy. It's not about what leaf pops up on ancestry, right? It's about your heart. And he says that when it comes to, to keeping the law, that too is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not just by the letter. It's not just by looking at a, a list and going check, 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 check. No, there's something, something on the inside that has to happen here. It's something that's different than what they saw. So, so what does that mean then for that concept of Jewish privilege? Well, it means that being born into a privileged position does not guarantee a, a positive outcome any more than being born into a disadvantaged position guarantees a negative outcome. You can, so to speak, just I think you'll get what I'm trying to say with this comment, you can, so to speak, be born in spiritual wealth and die in spiritual poverty. Or you could, so to speak, be born in spiritual poverty and end up in spiritual wealth. And as Paul explains this issue here, he knows all of this and is being, quite frankly, somewhat sarcastic, as he will do a lot in Galatians. He's being somewhat sarcastic here as he's building his larger argument, which we will see more of next week. Our second foundation stone, then, is this that being a Jew by birth does not guarantee you anything, definitely not salvation, any more than being a Gentile sinner by birth does not guarantee anything especially, or it does not prohibit you, I mean, from anything especially salvation. Now, you know, what do we do with all of this this week? Well, I was, um, I was convicted. I'll just throw this out at the beginning. As I was thinking through the ramifications of some of this this week, because it occurred to me that we are in no different of a situation than they were. What I mean by that is that every single person who's born, every one of you in this room, you are either born into a position of spiritual privilege or spiritual disadvantage one way or the other. By being born into spiritual privilege today, I would be referring to those who have grown up in a genuine Christian setting. I'm talking about homes, families, churches where the gospel is clearly presented, the Bible is clearly preached. You really do have that idea of, of, of a real privilege because you have access to the truth of the gospel and God's word before you. On the other side, by being born into spiritual disadvantage, I'd be referring to everyone else who didn't grow up in that genuine Christian setting. And there are many, many people. In fact, some of you did not grow up in Christian homes did not come from a, a home, a family, a church, a, a community, or whatever, that, or people who knew and loved Jesus. You had no concept 
of these things. And as I think about that, I realize that in regards to those who have been born into spiritual privilege, for anyone in this room who you grew up in a Christian home, you grew up in a church, or your kids are growing up in that kind of setting, I'd exhort you to not squander that wealth. Do not squander that wealth. First, do not take for granted your salvation. It is easy. I know we would say, oh, this is never the case, but it is the case. It is easy when we have grown up in a a particular context, particularly a Christian context, where from our earliest days, all we've known is church. All we've known is the Bible. We've known every Bible answer, every Sunday school answer. We have all the knowledge in the world. It is so easy to be blinded by that, particularly in relation to our salvation. And it's at that point, one of the scariest passages in in all of Scripture, Matthew 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount comes to my mind, when he says that, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone. In fact, he then makes it even scarier. Here's the scariest word. He says, there will be many who say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all this stuff? And what's his response back to them? I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And when you read that passage, clearly that's not referring to the Gentile sinners, right? The people who knew nothing about Yahweh. He's referring to people who knew. They knew who the Lord was. They had an understanding of who the Lord, they can call it out to him. They did things for him. And yet he says there will be many on that day who who he will turn away. I don't say that to to scare us. I'm not trying to be like a a fear monger with that comment, but I also recognize that we're told to examine ourselves to see whether or not we're truly in the faith, that there is a real danger, a real possibility that you can grow up and spend your entire life deluded by false knowledge, knowing who God is and doing things for him, but never once knowing him. It's a terrifying concept, and I I've thought about it multiple, many, many times over the years. I know. I don't know who, so don't take it personally. I know that not everyone who's a part of Cornerstone will spend eternity with Christ. I'm not accusing anyone. I don't have like a name on my, well, Caleb maybe, but everybody else, right? No. I, don't, I don't know who or what, but I just know there's, there's no possible way, right, that that every single person who is a part of this church who claims the name of Jesus is, is actually a believer. So examine yourselves. That's all I'm saying. Don't take your salvation for granted. I'm not, I'm not putting fear in your heart. I'm just saying obey the scriptures on this. Examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Don't take your salvation for granted if you've been born into spiritual privilege. Number two, uh, don't take holiness for granted either. It's very easy, it seems to me, at least, for those of us who've grown up in Christianity and, and, and in genuine Christian culture, you know, we, we see things our parents did or former generation did, and, and you know, because we're stupid and foolish, we, we like, ah, we don't want that, and so we quickly run away from them, not understanding why <laughs> our former, our forefathers did these things. I, it, this is kind of a dumb analogy, you can ignore it if you want, but I think of, of 
Cornelius Vanderbilt and his kids, right? Why did Cornelius Vanderbilt amass so much wealth? Well, I could just say at a very human level, it's because he was smart, he was a hard worker, he was self-disciplined, he spent less money than he made, right? I, can, I could probably name a whole bunch of things. Now I go look at his kids and grandkids and why didn't they continue in wealth? Well, it's because they apparently weren't as smart, not as disciplined, not as self-controlled, they spent more money than they had. It's like they walked away from the very things that had had protected them and got them to the point they were. They abandoned that. And I, that's a dumb analogy, but now bring it back into our, our Christian experience. How many things like that in our own lives have we walked away from as, as a group of Christians, as a culture, as a generation, my generation in particular, that our forefathers did and pursued, and, and we don't even think about it. And we, yet we expect the same results? I, I don't know. I think we just need to be careful to not take for granted personal holiness, to not take for for granted spiritual disciplines of of being in Scripture, of prayer, of gathering with God's people. These are serving. There's so many things we could name. You get the idea. Number three here I would say, and this is for you parents, don't take your children for granted. I, I say this as a dad, and this was what was so convicting to me this week. I mean, my kids have never known a moment, not even a second of their life, not in church, not in a Christian context. My goodness, I'm a pastor, right? Like my whole job, everything about my life is like around this. So they, they're exposed to that all the time. And I'm like, you know, it'd be easy for me as a dad to be like, well, they're probably going to be fine then, right? Because they hear it and they see it and they know it. And they're good kids and so everything will be fine. Folks, I'm just here to remind you that if our children accept Christ as Savior, it will not be because we were good parents, It will not be because we presented the gospel to them. God may use that, but that's not what caused it. Anyone who is saved, anyone who is made right with God, gets to that spot by grace and grace alone. I've seen great parents whose kids go awry. I've seen terrible parents whose kids serve the Lord. (laughs) you, You won't get any credit. You won't, your kids won't stand before God someday and say, you should let me into heaven because Jesus died for me and my mom, she was so wonderful. Like, it's just, it's not the case. It's not the case. So what do you do then for your kids? You pray. And you pray. And then you pray some more. And you keep praying. And you don't stop praying. And you do present the gospel to them. And you do talk about scripture with them. And you do model what it means to follow Jesus for them but you keep praying and praying and praying because we do not want to settle for good, moral, behaved kids, but end up with an unconverted generation. If our kids are not converted, however good they are, they're in no better shape than the lost, than anyone else around them. So if, if you have that spiritual privilege, if your children have that spiritual privilege, I exhort you with those things to not squander the wealth. And in regard then to those who have not been born into to that kind of privilege, they were born into spiritual disadvantage. I would just remind you that there's real hope of salvation in Jesus. I said this in the first uh, uh, hour, and I'm not going to do it this one either. I didn't do it then. I'm not going to do it now. But I'd be curious to look around the room and see how many of you are first-generation Christians. Now, I think about this with, in relation to my in-laws Jamie's parents were first-generation Christians. They did not grow up in any kind of a Christian home whatsoever, no background. So disadvantage right from the beginning. Uh, They don't get saved until they're in their 20s. Jamie remembers them pre-salvation, remembers kind of what life was like. Not well, I think she was like five, but she has some memories of that time. But what she does remember without any question or problem whatsoever is the dramatic change that occurred in their life, right? 
there was real hope. (laughs) There was no hope in their family, but there was real hope in Christ. And I would just remind us of that, that that is where the hope always lies. If if you're sitting here and you've got family members maybe in that spot or whatever the case may be, remember the God that they have rejected is willing to accept them through the sacrifice of his son. And so whatever the case may be, as we think through all of these things, I just want us to remember, don't squander the wealth. Don't take for granted the privileges God has given you if you are in this room today. Don't take it for granted for yourself, for your children, for your families, for this church. We have to stay humble. We have to stay pursuing and uh, pursuing and, and, and staying faithful to the scriptures and to the gospel, putting all of our hope in Jesus because he is the only one who brings us real hope. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me? Father, I just want us to remember today that all of us stand by grace alone. That, that is it. The Jews had, had wrongly, not because your word had led them to this, but over time, their own hearts had led them this way to see that you would accept them just because of their biology and their own obedience. But this, this wasn't true. You don't accept any of us just because of who we are and definitely not because of what we do. You always accept us in spite of who we are and in spite of what we do. And so I pray that you will help us as a church family to understand that, that we're, we're in the same potential danger that they were. We're always one generation away from seeing the gospel go kaput. And so I pray that you will protect us. Help us to not take for granted the blessings that you have given to us, to not take for granted our salvation, to not take for granted personal holiness, to not take for granted our children who are growing up. We have so many in this church who are growing up in in, in Christian homes, and that's a blessing. But there is a danger and a responsibility there as well. Help us to never take that for granted to rely on you for all things, knowing that you alone are our hope. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.